in real estate jargon, a rundown house in need of repair is labeled a fixer-upper. Hey, you'll never see an advertisement for a shack or for a dump. Nobody wants to purchase a condemned domicile. But put out an ad using the term fixer-upper, and some energetic, young, handyman might just see that as a challenge and take the dump off your hands. Well, at the time of Haggai, the temple in Jerusalem was a real fixer-upper. For four centuries, there was nothing like the grand and glorious temple built by Solomon. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It served as the center of Jerusalem's national life. But now, it's a patch of weed and rock. In 586 BC, the dreaded Babylonian army burst through the walls of Jerusalem and demolished the city. They toppled the temple. They took the Jews back to Babel. As they served out their 70-year sentence in captivity, what was left of the temple lay in ruins. The temple had been reduced to rubble. And yet, as God would have it, in 536 B.C., the tide turned. The Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And the new administration, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, they were friends of the Hebrew prophet Daniel. This caused them to be fond of the Jews. King Cyrus allowed them to return home. And that's when God could have said, Anyone interested in a real fixer-upper? For it was God's goal for His people to return to the land that He had promised them and rebuild their temple, the place of sacrifice and worship. And there was an ambitious young handyman who loved God and who accepted God's call, rubble was right up Zerubbabel's alley. Think of Zerubbabel as a combination of a builder and an organizer and a pioneer and a pastor. He was appointed the governor of Judah. And along with Joshua the priest, he led 50,000 eager and energetic pioneering and patriotic Jews to pull up stakes, return to Judah, reconstruct their city, and most importantly, rebuild God's temple. And they got off to a good start. They laid the foundation of the temple. It occurred in the second month of the year 535 B.C. But that's as far with the construction as they got. Zerubbabel ran into problems and the work came to a screeching halt. Enter our guy, the prophet Haggai. God sent him to light a fire under the Jews. His job was to cause them to see the significance of God's temple and to reprioritize its construction. God wasn't happy with the building delays. And this book... This book, my friends, contains a message for you and me. For we also have been called by God to construct His temple. In this case, our church. You see, the prophecy of Haggai is as relevant to us as it was to the Jews who returned to Babylon. Like the temple of old, the church is the one place in the world today where people can gather and be assured of meeting God. It's a place of worship and community, and sacrifice, 
and love. It's been said, and I like it, every chair in the church should be a love seat. You know, people tend to measure the importance of a church by what we do. They count the folks we feed and the material we distribute and the buildings we erect and the aid we offer and the organization we provide and the funds we collect. But the real value of a church is not in what we do, but it's in what we are. Our church and others like it are the dot on the map where a person in our community can reach out and find God. We're that tangible point of contact. Folks should be able to walk through those doors and feel God's love through His people and hear God's truth spoken through His Word. You see, when God looks down on a community, the spiritual hot spot in that city is not the city hall or the police station or the university or the business center or the parks and rec or, or restaurant row. No, the hot spot is God's church. We are God's spot. Other groups can feed and distribute and organize and fund, but only the church can be the house and the temple of the living God. I've heard it said, the church has many critics, but no rivals. The church serves a unique and vital role. And every Christian, that means you, that means me, has a divine calling to help build the church. Now Haggai begins in chapter 1 verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now here's the first clue, God is angry with the Jews. Usually he calls them my people. Here he says, this people. And this people live by a motto. Always put off until tomorrow what you could do today. These resettled Jews, they were procrastinators. Reminds me of the pastor's son. He's just eight years old. He'd been raised in church. He'd heard all the biblical terms, justification and sanctification and propitiation and revelation, all the Asians. The boy had been exposed to all of these, these terms countless times, but he didn't know what any of them meant. He just knew that they were church words. Well, one day in class, the teacher asked if anyone knew the meaning of the word procrastination. The little boy's hand shot up. He told her, he said, I'm not sure what it means, but I know it's something my church believes in. <laughs> Sadly, many churches seem to believe in procrastination. It's their modus operandi. It characterizes all that they do. It's one thing to wait on the Lord, but what if the time is now? Well, what if the tool that God wants to use is you? Hey, I believe we need to trust in God, but we need to trust, not rust. Well, when Zerubbabel and the Jews returned to the land, they immediately went to work on the temple. They took an offering, they built an altar, and they hired stonemasons and craftsmen. And they imported cedar logs from Lebanon, and they laid the foundation. But then the work shut down. You could say they, they just tossed in the trowel. You could say that. Zerubbabel butted heads with the county officials. 
You see, while the Jews were in Babylon, a people called the Samaritans had moved in and had occupied the land. Now these Samaritans, they were uncomfortable that the land's rightful owners were coming back. And so they oppose and they try to sabotage Zerubbabel's efforts. Eventually they secure an injunction from Persia to stop the work. Oh, it all gets cleared up. But in the meantime, the momentum was lost. The once enthused Jews start to battle frustration. Distraction settles in. And for the next 15 years, mind you, 15 years, the rebuilding gets neglected until the year 520 B.C. In that one year, 520 B.C., over a four-month span, the prophet Haggai, delivers four fiery sermons designed to jumpstart the temple construction. I want you to jot down these four words. Haggai's first sermon deals with the people's self-centeredness. His second sermon shows the people's short-sightedness. His third sermon addresses the people's self-righteousness. And sermon number four addresses Zerubbabel's own tendency to second-guess himself. Today, God is building a spiritual temple, this church. And the biggest problems we face are the same four encountered by Zerubbabel. You know, in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus gave us a glorious promise. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Do you know what this means? This means victory has been won. The outcome is now certain. Nothing can defeat us. The church is invincible. In the years that I coached Little League, and there were many of them, I would always gather up our team. And I would look all 12 boys eyeball to eyeball, and I would assure them that no other team in our league could beat us. That the only team that could defeat us was us. If we didn't think, if we didn't try our best, if we didn't work together, we would self-destruct. And the same applies to this church. The only way that we can lose is if we get self-centered or become short-sighted or grow self-righteous or if we sit in the peanut gallery and second-guess ourselves. I believe the message of Haggai is a timely word from God to Calvary Chapel. I'm praying for our church today. Well, Haggai's first sermon was delivered on August the 29th. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 3. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? And this temple to lie in ruins? Now notice the prophet's sarcasm. The Jews said it wasn't time to build God's house. But it had certainly been time to build their own houses. And oh, not just houses. They had built paneled houses. I mean, the Jerusalem suburbs looked like the Atlanta home show. Everyone was styling the newest designs and the latest decors. I mean, these Jews were living in luxury. Ezra chapter 3 verse 7 gives us a detail. We're told that when the construction on the temple began, Jews bought cedar logs 
and had them brought down to Joppa and then exported up to the temple. Cedar logs. Notice here, they're building paneled houses with cedar siding. And it's my suspicion that this fancy cedar siding had come from the building materials that they had lifted from the Lord's house. Imagine stealing cedar planks intended for God's house and using them to build your own house. Here were people who had started out serving God. But over time, their attention shifted from God's house to their own house. And I can't tell you how often I have seen this happen. I mean, the couple who used to hang out at the church, who were always involved, who really enjoyed the fellowship, one day they drop a down payment on a house and we rarely see them again. And it's not just a home that can cause people to grow self-absorbed. A whole host of distractions prompt people to retreat into their own little world. Their hearts end up no bigger than their own four walls. Careers and kids' activities and hobbies and youth sports and lawn work can all become deadly diversions. Hey, we want and expect a strong church when we need one. But what are we doing to make it strong in the meantime? Here about the four guys, they were out playing golf on a Sunday morning. And after a few holes, it started to rain. They, they headed back to the clubhouse, but lightning struck the power line. So the restaurant had to close early. I mean, the whole day was just a wash. On the way to the car, one of the guys, he says to his partner, he says, man, we could have just as well gone to church this morning. The, the, his friend responded, he said, nah, he says, I couldn't have gone to church anyway. My wife is sick and she's at home in bed. I couldn't have gone to church. Went golfing, but couldn't have gone to church. Hey, there is a temple to be built and you have a part to play. But how far down the priority list has the building of that temple dropped? Well, Haggai warns us in verses 5 and 6. Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in a little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. In other words, live for yourself and the rewards will never equal the investment. Self-centeredness produces a hollow existence. Zerubbabel's distracted workers, they were involved in an empty pursuit, in a vain gain. And Haggai paints this graphic picture. He says, living for yourself is like shopping with a bottomless shopping bag. Imagine now walking through Walmart. You're purchasing item after item. You're sticking them in this bag. But then at the end of the, the day, at the checkout, you look up and there's nothing in the bag. And you've grown broke in the process. This is what it's like to live without Jesus. To live for yourself. Jesus told us, he who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Real fulfillment comes when I lay down selfish ambitions and throw myself into a great work for God. 
This is God's suggestion to them. Look at verse 8. He says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. You know, speaking of great works for God, let me talk for a moment about the kind of temple that we envision and that we are building here at Calvary Chapel. We have got no interest whatsoever in swapping sheep with other churches. We're after the folks who've never tasted God's love. And we're not trying to just gather up people that are like us or look like us or live with us. We're trying to gather up all of God's people, all types of people, all different stripes and types. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy. And I want this place to be a joyful, happy place. Neither do we hammer folks with the mallet of morality because that's not how people become holy in the first place. Believers need to learn to live and grow and abide in God's grace and then trust His Spirit to change them from the inside out. That's the kind of church and transformation we want to promote. How tired we are of human opinion. Oh my. How we long to hear God's Word. We want to proclaim God's word. And we want Jesus without the religious trappings and the traditions of men. Cookie cutter Christianity is not for us. You don't have to be like me to be like Jesus. Aren't you glad? <laughs> hey, we crave reality and despise hypocrisy even when it appears in us. Our pursuit is authentic, spirit-led life with God. And we believe life starts when you give it away. To be unhappy, just get selfish. God's forgiveness is free and we want to give it away freely. We believe that a whole Bible can make a whole Christian that can reach the whole world. In a nutshell, man, these are the values of our church. This is what we're all about. And I hope you agree that building such a church constitutes a great work for God. And you have a contribution that you need to make. And I'll be bold here. Be it your money or your time or your gifts or your prayers or your service or your encouragement or just your attendance. Are you always a taker or have you become a giver? Each of us has a contribution to make. It reminds me of the fellow who stayed overnight at the monastery. For dinner, the brothers... They served the best fish and chips this man had ever eaten. In fact, he was so impressed, he, he went back to the kitchen after the meal to compliment the cook. And he found out that actually two priests had worked on this fabulous fish and chips. The first priest, he introduced himself. He said, man, he said, thank you. He said, I'm the fish fryer. The, the, the fish fryer? And then the second priest chimed in, yeah, and, and, and I'm the chip monk. So, <laughs> The fish fryer and the, and the chipmunk, you know. The point is, each of us... Well, the point is, that was a clever joke. It was a cute joke. But then the other point is, is that we all have a place. You may be a fish fryer or a chipmunk, but we all have a place in the building up of this temple. Read God's conclusion in verse 9. He says, You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. 
I mean, they landed in Jerusalem with these great expectations, but God made sure that life was a letdown. The little bit they did accumulate, he blew away. God sent lean times. Nothing they really tried worked out like they planned. And in verse 9, Haggai asked, why, Lord? And God answers him, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. You see, life didn't work out right because they'd gotten their priorities all wrong. And here's the question for us. Why do we think God will treat us any differently? You need to remember and your kids need to learn that there's something in life more important than another dollar or the next ball game or the television special or the day at the lake. Your house should be helping to build God's house. Now Haggai preached his first sermon on August the 29th. I'm translating the dates for you. Construction resumed on the temple September the 21st. Haggai's second sermon came three weeks later on October the 17th. And understand what went on during those three weeks between the resumption of the, the temple construction and his next sermon. The Jews celebrated their fall feasts during that time. Feast of Trumpets and Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. Those feasts fell in that three-week interval. At least 13 of the 26 days had been holy days. And as a result, very little work had gotten done. But here's what did happen. During the feast, Jews came to town from the surrounding regions. And a group of cynics became very vocal. These were the old guys, the old men, the geezers, the geriatric Jews. These were the guys who remembered the majesty and beauty and grandeur of Solomon's temple. And they could already tell that this new temple, Zerubbabel's temple, was going to be a shack in comparison. And they began to voice their cynicism and their negativity. And imagine what this did for the morale of the people. I mean, folks had been primed, pumped up, raring and ready to do a great work for God. When all, along, all of a sudden, along come these party poopers who just throw a wet blanket on top of the project. I mean, they douse the flame of enthusiasm. Hey, let me just testify to you today. As a church leader, nothing is more discouraging than to get uninformed, criticism and cynicism and negativity. I mean, it just sucks the wind right out of your cells. And this is why God moves quickly here to strengthen his construction bosses. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you. You know, the way to fight through a cloud of negativity is to stay strong and keep at it. Work through it. Don't let the sideline cynic distract you from playing the game. It's easy to sit on the sidelines and hurl criticism. You stick at it. You stay strong. You keep at the work. Understand, 
Not every faithful pastor presides over a huge megachurch. I pastor a wonderful church. But other churches in our community are larger in number and better equipped and have more resources. You know, I feel my ministry is more an example of a sanctified stubbornness than it is a screaming success. I think of the stone cutter who pounds the rock with his mallet hundreds of times. All he sees though is a few hairline cracks. He later steps aside and on his replacement's first swing, the rock splits in a zillion pieces. That doesn't mean that the first man's efforts were futile. His role was strategic. And I think, what if our job is to just keep pounding, keep working? What if the generation that succeeds us is the one that gets to split the rock into a million pieces? I'll be happy with that. I will have served my, my role. Zerubbabel needs to be strong. And he needs to keep pounding. Now God gives Zerubbabel this pep talk, but he also does something else. He gives him a promise. In fact, God gives such a staggering promise that it overshadows the old boy's cynicism. He says in the last half of verse 6, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. Then verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Then verse 9, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Now, now, if you were there at the time, you would wonder, how can this be? Solomon was history's richest man. He could afford the frills and the extras. He hired more skilled craftsmen. He brought in imports from around the world. How could Zerubbabel's little temple ever be more glorious than Solomon's temple? In fact, the Babylonian Talmud, a Jewish source, tells us that there were at least five strategic pieces missing from the second temple that were present in the first. The Ark of the Covenant. The fire that burned on the altar. The Shekinah glory that filled the Holy of Holies. The spirit of prophecy. The voice of God and the Urim and the Thummim. The sacred stones that they would roll in order to determine God's will. Certainly Zerubbabel ended up building a bare bones temple. How could this holy hut of Zerubbabel's end up more glorious than the loaded temple of Solomon? Here's God's answer. He tells Zerubbabel in verse 7. He says he will send to the second temple something the first temple never had. And he calls it the desire of all nations. That was a term the rabbis used to refer to the Messiah. What made Zerubbabel's temple more, more glorious than Solomon's? Here's the answer. It was visited by the Son of God himself. Jesus came to this temple. Jesus came to the second temple. God incarnate graced its halls. God taught in its porticos. Jesus worked miracles in its courtyards. Indeed, the glory of God filled the second temple that far exceeded the glory evident in the first temple. 
Jesus the Christ was the second temple's greater glory. The glory of Jesus more than made up for the trimmings the second temple lacked. The problem with the pessimist was that they were short-sighted. God makes a point in verse 8. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. You know, if God had wanted Zerubbabel's temple to be as elaborate and ornate and embellished as Solomon's temple, he could have paid for the bling. All the gold and silver belongs to him. Obviously, it was not God's concern to make for a fashy, fa uh, that, that's a combination of fancy and, and splashy, flashy. It wasn't God's concern to make a fancy, splashy temple. You see, the old guys had made superficial evaluations. They saw only brick and mortar. They didn't see the purpose God had in store for this temple. And we too can make similar superficial judgments. We think a church of 15,000 people is more glorious than a church with 50. Or that spacious, sprawling new facilities have a greater glory than the storefront church or the warehouse sanctuary. Don't be deceived. God has an individual plan for every church. The church is where Jesus dwells. Its splendor and its size matter little to God. In Matthew 18 verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Jesus has a purpose for every church, large or small, glitzy or gritty whether it meets in a big house or a warehouse or an outhouse for that matter. If Jesus shows up every week, how dare you consider it to be insignificant? Now there are some churches in our community that look like they were built by Solomon. They have the best programs and the best pastors. In comparison, this church and its pastors, we're more Zerubbabel-like. We're just barely up from the rubble. And I suppose if you look hard enough, there's lots of reasons to get cynical and skeptical about your church and its pastor. But I want you to know this. There is one reason why you should love this church and why you should support this church and why you should get involved in helping build this church. For God has promised us the desire of all nations. Jesus fills this church with His grace and His glory. What the nations desire, what societies and cultures and populations crave, we possess, my friends. Jesus lives in us and meets with us. Our fellowship is in Him. We have the world's greatest need. We possess it. We have the desire of all nations. In chapter 2 verse 7, Haggai writes of God. He says, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I believe there's a shaking going on in our world today. And not just in Haiti. Society today is in an upheaval. We've been shaken economically. Marriage is in decline. Divorce is up. Children are are victims of broken homes. Evolutionary propaganda is destroying our respect for human life. Moral relativism has stripped us of right and wrong. Pornography tortures the minds of millions. Violence runs rampant. 
Our courts are ineffective to do anything about it. I, I heard recently of a judge in New York City who was mugged. And afterwards he felt need, he, that he needed to call a press conference. So that he could announce to his constituency that his misfortune was not going to affect his judicial decisions. One old lady stood up in the back and she said, well then mug him again. <laughs> when is it going to affect your decisions? How long are we going to put up with the violence and the crime? There is a shaking going on. And this shaking is producing a seeking. People are looking for answers. And they're looking in a spiritual direction. You know, when this building was under construction, I came up one day to check on things. And I found a young man out in the back there who had, who had just sort of wandered over to the church. He said he had just been drawn here. He told me that he had been in a fight with his wife. And he said he just felt the peace of God in this place. And we were able to share and we talked and I shared some scripture and we prayed together. And he was comforted. And you know, if you go back to the walkway behind the building, if you go over here to the west side of the building, and if you look in the concrete, you'll see a scripture reference that I put there. Right when the concrete was poured, when it was still wet, I took a stick and I, and I wrote a scripture verse in the concrete. Haggai 2 verse 9. Because this verse has been prophetic for our church. Before moving into this facility, we believed that Jesus would reveal a greater glory here than in our former facility. We also believed that this building would be a place of peace for many people. And that is exactly what has happened and continues to happen today. If these walls could just talk. I'm more excited today about our church than ever before. And not because I expect us to become some kind of mega church. The reason I'm excited is because Jesus works in this place. And every time I come, Jesus is already here. He showed up ahead of me. Hey, we're a brown bag operation for sure. But God's grace is here. And I want to be in the middle of His grace. Well, the last two of Haggai's sermons were preached on the same day. December the 18th. Two months had expired since his second sermon. Enough time for another problem to arise among the workers. Zerubbabel's band of merry men had gotten proud. They developed a toxic case of self-righteousness. They were saying, look at what we've built. And here is a potential pitfall for any church. The church was meant to be a source of pleasure to God, not a source of pride for His people. You see, Haggai humbles them with a lesson in Levitical law. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he explains that holiness is non-communicable. In other words, you don't get holy by hanging out with holy people. Or going to holy places or even building a holy temple. Holiness isn't a virus. Holiness is not contagious. In other words, Billy Graham could sneeze on you and it wouldn't make you any more spiritual or godly. You can swim in a sea of holy water and you won't come out any holier. Prunier maybe, but no holier than when you dove in. Here's the point. Erecting a temple... Getting involved in church 
It's no substitute for real commitment to God and purity of heart and faith in Him. What we do with our hands is never an excuse for what happens in our hearts. We need to stay humble. Haggai says, don't get puffed up. Attitude matters even to temple builders. And then Haggai's fourth sermon was directed specifically to Zerubbabel. Apparently, this governor did a lot of second-guessing himself. You know, he kind of wondered sometimes about his leadership and doubted his decisions. And Zerubbabel was sort of plagued with self-doubt. And so Haggai encourages him. He assures him that God is going to exalt him in a wonderful way. In verse 23, God tells Zerubbabel that he will make him like a signet ring. You see, the signet was the king's official seal. It was a sign of great authority. And he's saying to Zerubbabel, one day you're going to occupy an important post. Now in his lifetime, that never occurred. I mean, Zerubbabel being a governor, that was no big deal. He was just one of many, many Persian governors. He was assigned to a distant outpost in the outback of Judah. Few of his peers probably even knew he existed. And you know, when it comes to Bible heroes, he doesn't fare much better, does he? When you think of the great men of the faith, does Zerubbabel come to mind? I mean, he's eclipsed by men like Moses and David and Daniel, Paul. But verse 23 causes many Bible scholars to believe that Zerubbabel will play a vital role in the last days when Jesus returns and reigns from Jerusalem. In this life, he was overlooked. But in the kingdom, Zerubbabel may be known around the world. And this is one of the reasons I'm going to love heaven. Because heaven is going to be so full of surprises. People you never expected are going to occupy the highest places. Christians who serve faithfully in anonymity will occupy the most important posts while those who labored in the spotlight may just take the back seats. Now I want you to catch this. God may use you in this life to do great things. Or God may use this life to prepare you for great things in the kingdom come. Temple builders aren't always appreciated in the here and now. Their promotion is still future. And Zerubbabel is a reminder of the promise. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. If not in this lifetime, in the life to come. Now like the temple of old, the church today is the most strategic institution on earth. For we connect people with Jesus. Hey, we don't deserve it, but Jesus is in our midst. The desire of all nations is ours. And we can take God's hand and man's hand and we can put the two together. What other institution can deliver such a service? No corporation, no team, no charity, no institution, no enterprise, no government. We are God's hot spot. This is why we need to beware of self-centeredness and short-sightedness and self-righteousness and second-guessing ourselves and things that could undermine what God wants to do. We need to be strong. We need to believe. We need to be humble. And we need to be assured. Guys, there's only one team that can beat us. 
And that's us.